As far as President Marcos Jr. is concerned, the enhanced defense cooperation with America is going to be fully implemented. In fact, not only fully implemented, it's going to be also expanded. New bases have been added to the five pre-designated bases under the ETCA that was negotiated by the former Aquino administration. And the Armed Forces of the Philippines, in fact, suggested that ETCA could be even further expanded with new sites and facilities open up to America, depending on the strategic exigencies and the priorities of the Philippines, whether in the Philippine Sea or the West Philippine Sea or other areas of major concern for the Philippines. As far as the Filipino people are concerned, they are also very much for the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement based on many surveys we're seeing. Survey after survey, it suggests that not only the majority, but the supermajority of Filipinos want us to team up with the United States, team up with Japan and other like-minded countries to protect the Philippine interests in the West Philippine Sea. And survey after survey, we also see that China suffers from very low trust and approval ratings among the Filipino people. Nevertheless, the ETCA and the Philippines' expanding security cooperation with the United States has its own share of critics. Not only the former president, not only some senators, but also some groups from the progressive factions of the Philippine civil society. To get a better view of what could be the cons or the negative side of the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, let's talk to the former legislator and longtime activist Teddy Casino. To better understand the opposition to the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement and the general state of the Philippine progressive movement, today we're going to have a conversation with longtime former legislator and also uh, activist uh, Teddy Casino. Thank you very much, Teddy Casino, for joining us. Let me cut to the chase. There has been a lot of discussion about the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. We have had a number of guests here on our program who talked about the value of the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement in terms of deterrence, in terms of preparation. Uh, also, we had guests who explained the American side of the picture and insisted that this is a flexible deal, that there will be a respect for the Philippine sovereignty. Where is your opposition or, or, or people from your movement's opposition to the EDCA coming from? Well, to sum it up, I think uh, the EDCA, the Balikatan 2023, and the uh, recently uh, signed bilateral defense agreement really ties us down, ties us so much uh, in the escalating arms race between the United States and China. And if you read that, uh, if, if, if we look at what happened during the Balikatan, 12,000 American soldiers coming here, and if we look at the you know, super expanded scope of the new bilateral agreement, uh, we, we have really intertwined ourselves into, the, into America's agenda in the Indo-Pacific region. And uh, basically, we are now part of the arms race. And uh, whatever happens to that arms race, if there will be a war that actually breaks out between the United States and China, or not even a war, if the conflict worsens, we will now really be entrenched on one side. And I think uh, for a country like the Philippines, that is that that has is trying to um, assert its sovereignty, that is not a good position to be in. Mm -hmm. And I think that is our basic uh, uh, objection to this escalating uh, presence of American forces in the Philippines and and the very tight now and very detailed 
and really expanded uh, security arrangements that uh, has recently been signed. I see where you're coming from, but what would you say to people who argue that, well, the Philippines is already a treaty ally of the United States. The Philippines already has territorial disputes with China. The Philippines is already very close to Taiwan. I mean, they're our neighbor. This is geography. We cannot change it. The idea of being neutral, the idea of trying to stay it out, that's just wishful thinking, many would argue. What do you have to say about that? I mean, how realistic is it for the Philippines to stay this out or be neutral when we are already a U.S. treaty ally and when we're already close to Taiwan? So geographically, it will be very hard to insulate the Philippines from any potential showdown there. So the argument would be, why shouldn't we just prepare for it or help even prevent it? It's not about being neutral. It's about being a voice of moderation. It's about being a voice of peace in the region. It's about the Philippines playing a role in de-escalating the conflict, in demilitarizing, de demilitarizing the area. But as it is now, we are now going to be active participants in the arms race that, uh, and, and taking one side, uh, the, the, the side of the United States. And for a country that is so close to Taiwan and that is so close to China and that has relatively good relations with these countries, um, I think it would be uh, it would not be in a good position for the Philippines to take strongly take one side mm -hmm. um, and and to be part of that um, escalation of of uh, military uh, military activities. You said relatively. I, I think the Philippines mm -hmm. still there is still room for the Philippines mm -hmm. to be a voice of uh, moderation and uh, to be able to, to assert its sovereignty without having to count uh, out too much to either side. Well, on the idea of relatively good relationship, I mean, how could you say that the Philippines has a relatively good relationship with China when? China is, you know, threatening the Philippines, some would say, on a daily basis through harassment of the Filipino fishermen, you know, pointing uh, military-grade lasers at Filipino Coast Guard. Uh, we had so many incidents throughout the years, not to mention the months-long naval standoff over Scarborough Shoal. Some would argue that the critics of ETSA, uh, of EDCA, sorry, critics of EDCA are a little bit too nice to China, or they're not being critical enough of China, and they're instead being too critical of the United States. Uh, what do you say about that? That's not true. In fact, we have been pushing the Philippine government to be more assertive of mm -hmm. our, our rights in the West Philippine Sea. As you know, this was a major source of disagreement with the Duterte regime. One of our strongest criticisms against Duterte mm -hmm. was he did not defend Philippine sovereignty. But you can defend Philippine sovereignty without having to ride the American bandwagon uh, uh, and, and you know, being part of their... Uh, they have a different agenda in the Indo-Pacific. Um, so that is our problem there. But definitely, uh, there is still room for more assertiveness, for more creativity, more diplomacy, more political action when it comes to the West Philippine Sea. You spoke about being a voice of moderation, but why would even China listen to the Philippines when in fact, the question is, what is our leverage with China? It's not like President Duterte uh, did not try to reach out to them. It's not like President Duterte did not have a lot of communication channels with them. He always expresses love for them. He said that he's dependent on them for his own protection. I mean, we had absolutely golden era of bilateral relationship with China uh, under President Duterte, and yet that didn't help even our own cause in the West Philippine Sea. How would you say that the Philippines can have can be a voice of reason when it comes to disputes that are not even within the Philippines 
direct purview of national interest, i.e. The, the issue in Taiwan. How can we be a voice for moderation when China I, is not listening at all? I never thought that there was a voice of reason. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a voice of moderation. He, he, he uh, was spewing out very ridiculous statements. And then, you know, so me sip sips of China. That's not what we mean when we say engaging China in diplomacy and, uh, and, uh, engagement. Uh, so, so Duterte is hardly the model, uh, that, 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 uh, we are uh, looking forward to. Um, I think, uh, uh, you know, a more assertive action, uh, for example, for example, uh, using the international, uh, uh, ICC mm -hmm. mechanisms or uh, the United Nations mechanisms. Are, I think there are still a lot of areas uh, for uh, to gather diplomatic international support for our cause, um, mm -hmm. and and we can take that route. For example, also uh, how about mobilizing some of our friends in ASEAN? Mm -hmm. uh, we we often talk about joint patrols. But uh, why are we not talking about joint patrols with Vietnam, for example, or Malaysia or mm -hmm. Indonesia, other claimants that are also at odds with China? You know, so these things can be can be uh, formulated. Ang problema natin are our uh, our fallback is always or our our default uh, is always to run towards the United States. Uh, that is part of our colonial mentality. But I think that should change. Uh, Ted, you mentioned the ICC route. You mentioned the ASEAN route. But many would say that it's not like we didn't try those uh, mechanisms, right? In fact, there was an I, uh, you know, there was an arbitration case against China via a special court under UNCLOS, United Nations Convention of the Sea, in The Hague. And then, of course, there was also another attempt. I think this is by the camp of the late uh, Foreign Secretary Albert Rosario to use the ICC mechanism to go after the Chinese leadership for their violation of the Philippine sovereign rights. But we saw it consistently. China not only did not abide, it lambasted those mechanisms and accused the Philippines or whoever behind this, uh, uh, this legal moves as being provocative. If I'm mistaken, there was a travel ban uh, you know, imposed by China against some of the people who pushed for the ICC route to hold the Chinese officials accountable for the massive environmental damage caused in the West Philippine Sea. What do you say about that? And, and, and I'm glad that you mentioned the ASEAN route. Uh, I remember very well President Jokowi of Indonesia raised that issue in the Australia-ASEAN dialogue a few years ago. But the thing is, I don't see a political will. I mean, is there a political will on the part of Malaysia or Vietnam to, to join with the Philippines against China? What are the indications for that? Honestly, Richard, I think we haven't tried enough. You know, mm -hmm. in the last six years, under Duterte, our victory at the arbitrage tribunal was basically in the back burner. Uh, we, we did not use that for six years. Um, uh, and, and, and the ICC, you know, the government, uh, Duterte frowned upon that uh, move. Uh, I think in ASEAN as well, uh, Duterte was lukewarm to the idea of mobilizing his ASEAN allies against China because tip sip nga si Duterte sa China. Uh, but with the new administration, um, I think there, it, it, it can do more mm -hmm. than what Duterte did. 
without having to run to the United States and uh, allow additional military facilities here in the country, further stoking the conflicts between uh, these two superpowers, uh, I think we can play it smarter. Uh, as I said, Duterte is hardly the role model for engaging China or engaging ASEAN or even the United Nations. Mm-hmm. He was basically bad-mouthing the United Nations. Uh, he, he had no sense of diplomacy at all. So your argument is that the reason why international arbitration was not as helpful or the ASEAN mechanisms were not as helpful is because we had a president under Duterte who was questioning the very value of those mechanisms. In in, in a sense, you cannot be more Catholic than the Pope, right? Like, how can he help the Philippines if the president of the Philippines doesn't want to help himself? Is that the argument you're making here? Right. And the president proclaiming that he loves China and that uh, he wants the Philippines to be a province of China. I mean, how can you assert your sovereignty with that kind of a president? Mm -hmm. So with a new president, I mean, he could have started the... repairing the damage that Duterte has done. Uh, But, you know, uh, the steps that he has taken now to pivot towards the United States and be part of this uh, escalating conflict between the two superpowers Mm -hmm. uh, now precludes precludes, uh, further engagement, I think, with uh, China. And and that is important Mm -hmm. because, you know, China will, if, if we, if we um, rally the international community behind us, I think China will, will be forced to reckon with our very legitimate uh, claims in the South China Sea. I, I find this argument interesting because you keep on mentioning with the new administration, but this is a Ferdinand Marcos Jr. administration. Are you saying that you feel confident that a Marcos Jr. Uh, will uh, be the right person or is somehow the right person to push for the claims of the Philippines through international ASEAN mechanisms? Well, we have no choice. He's the new president. This is the new government. I mean, who else? Uh, The president is the chief architect of our foreign policy. Uh, Short of saying that we change the president, we will have to push him to, to do these things. Now, and you know, right. it, it's a new it's a new slate. It, it it's a new government. So that that opens up the possibilities for new approaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think uh, the approach that he has taken um, just brings us back to the, the days of his father, when uh, the U.S. had their military bases here, and we were seen as a, a puppet of uh, the United States in Asia. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean. It's not like Marcos Sr. also did not try to reach out to other superpowers, right? I mean, he was among the first U.S. allies to normalize ties with Maoist China. He had massive communication channels with the Soviet Union via even some of the former communists in the Philippines. I'm not sure if it's fair to say that Marcos Sr. was a kind of a puppet of the United States just because he had robust military relationship with them. Wasn't Marcos Sr. actually quite diversified in terms of his foreign policy approach? Aren't we caricaturing the former president. I mean, this is not to defend the entire record of the former Filipino strongman, but I think on the foreign policy, we have to give credit where credit is due. I mean, for instance, the airstrip that we have in the Pagasa, you know, in, in, that was built during the Marcos senior uh, period, the consolidation of Philippine claims in the Kalayan group of islands, that was during the Marcos senior period. So shouldn't that be a basis to be confident that the son, perhaps inspired by the father's legacy, will also push for 
uh, a much more assertive stance in the South China Sea. And perhaps <laughs> that explains why he's taking a tougher stance in the South China Sea than at least Duterte. You know, uh, Marcos Sr. opened diplomatic ties with China following the U.S. example, following President Nixon, who opened up uh, diplomatic relations with China, uh, I think, three years before that. Uh, also, uh, the Philippines' one-China policy is uh, exactly the same policy that the United States uh, uh, had uh, a few years before the Philippines did it. So it was actually a copycat. Uh, a, a copycat uh, policy uh, by the Marcos administration of the United States government. Um, so uh, when we say that the, that the Marcos was a U.S. puppet, uh, I think history would show that, uh, show that uh, until the last minute, the United States was really behind him. And it was only when the United States uh, abandoned support for Marcos that his regime basically fell. Yeah, I mean, you're correct to say. But that, I think uh, yeah. when it look, mm -hmm. when you look at foreign mm -hmm. policy, Philippine foreign policy during the time of Marcos, during the time when the Philipp U.S. bases were here, it was very closely adhering to uh, whatever U.S. policy, foreign policy was in in the mm -hmm. Pacific. Well, you're correct to say that actually, technically speaking, Nixon Kissinger outreach to Mao started in the early 1970s. But it was not like actually until the Carter administration when you had the full normalization of PRC and U.S. ties. But I understand where, what, where your argument is coming from. Now, speaking of Marcus Jr., he has on multiple occasions made it clear uh, that he doesn't want the ETCA to be used or leveraged by America in its own war against China or a potential war or conflict with China. He said he doesn't want the ETCA to be a staging post uh, for American military operations. He made it very clear that he will oppose any move to make it, uh, uh, you know, maybe to allow Americans to use the ETCA sites actually for uh, offensive operations. What do you say about that? Because it, some would argue that it's not like Marcus Jr. himself is, you know, too excited about jumping into American bandwagon and and risking a potentially fruitful relationship with China. Not to mention risking potential conflict with China. Of course, you will never expect a head of state to say that he will allow offensive military actions from a foreign military from his shore, mm -hmm. from his bases. And Marcos will never say that. But if you look at how, how these EDCA bases are designed, you know, I think four of these are basically air bases where drones can be, drone operations can mm -hmm. be uh, launched. Uh, to Taiwan, even to China. Uh, there will be a pre-positioning of weapons. Uh, we already had the Patriot, Patriot missiles during the last Balikatan. And, and these can really be used to attack the Chinese targets. Um, so uh, th that is just, you know, for show. But I think uh, militarily-wise, uh, these are forward bases. And uh, any actions can be justified as being defensive, uh, you know, they say that in the fog of war, it is nothing is really too clear whether mm -hmm. it is offensive or defensive. So uh, that is just talk, I think. Well, I mean, if, if the ETCA sites are just going to, I mean, this is the thing, right? Uh, I, I'm not sure we're still clear about the size of the American troops in some of these sites. They're called sites because a lot of them are not even 
full-fledged military facilities yet, right? Uh, and we're not sure about the number of American troops will gain rotational access. We're also not sure about what kind of weapon systems the Americans can put there. Because if it's just like a bunch of American troops, uh, let's say, you know, a few dozens or, uh, or just an artillery or howitzer there, I'm not sure that's going to be very helpful in a great power conflict with China, right? So, so some would say, okay, we, we, yeah, we but, understand where you're coming from, the, but the devil is the in Americans? the details. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course. But what we're saying is that, you know, why will the Americans put howitzers in their, in their uh, uh, forward bases? Um, that, that, would, that would be stupid. Uh, they're there for a reason, and they're near Taiwan for a reason. Um, we, we can only speculate, of course, but, mm -hmm. you know, this is the United States. It is the biggest military power in the world. It, it has the most record of uh, wars of aggression and wars of intervention, whether covert or overt, these bases will be definitely used for uh, military objectives, particularly uh, targeting China. Well, we have had guests on this show uh, from the Armed Forces of the Philippines and also uh, people who are following the ETCA very closely. They would argue that you know the ETCA is also important, including the sites in the north. It's not like they're as north as Mavulis or Fuga. I mean. Some of these sites are also close to, for instance, the Benham Rise, right? Or, or, or the Philippine Sea. And that these sites could also help the Philippines in terms of developing some minimum domain awareness. Because the reality is that, which we haven't talked about yet, the Philippine Armed Forces of the Philippines has very limited external security capabilities. And it will take a very long time before it can get anywhere close to even having what you call minimum deterrence or minimum credible uh, defense posture. So some would say the EDCA could help expedite uh, the Philippines' modernization or at least in the meantime, plug in the gaps. No? I mean, the Philippines, some would say, is almost blind when it comes to submarine activities by China in the Benham Rise or in the Luzon Strait and Bashi Channel. What do you say about that? Because some are saying, let's be just realistic about it, even though ideally it makes sense for the Philippines to focus on its own de development of its own capabilities. In the meantime, we have to do something because China is changing facts on the ground on a daily basis. It's not like China is not a massive military power. So I would say it's the largest military, at least in Asia. Uh, U.S. is a global power, so it cannot put all of its resources just in our region. So some would say, shouldn't be a little bit realistic about the current state of play? We, I think that remains to be seen whether mm -hmm. the presence of uh, American military um, forces in the Philippines will help develop our own naval capability or external defense capability. Because if you look at the record, in the 40 to 50 years that the American, the biggest American military bases were here, and we were enjoying a lot of military aid and military assistance from the United States, we never were able to develop a credible uh, external defense mm -hmm. posture. Uh, our Navy uh, remained or has, has deteriorated as one of the worst navies in Asia. And, and that is despite the presence of, for decades, of, uh, of all this military assistance and uh, military training and the military bases here. So what, what makes these EDCA sites different? Uh, so that remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, what are we going to do about uh, uh, increasing the budget for our Navy? What are we going to do about uh, purchasing ships, uh, not only from the United States, but other countries who can also provide us with uh, better better naval uh, naval assets uh, you know so uh, what I'm saying is that uh, 
let's not put everything on the United States. You know, it, uh, the record shows that uh, they have never really shown interest in developing our naval capabilities, and they have kept us really dependent on on their armed forces for these matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the detriment of our mm-hmm. capability. Well, I mean, clearly it's hard to argue with the fact that the armed forces of the Philippines really deterred in terms of its external security capabilities, but some would argue that's not necessarily because of America, it's because of the, you know, the martial law years, the war in Mindanao, the expansion of the uh, communist insurgency that, you know, the armed forces of the Philippines was so bogged down by domestic insurgencies that it was really not in a position to advance in the 21st century as a modern force. And therefore, perhaps this is more a reflection of the domestic problems in the Philippines than the nature of the bilateral relationship. Because after all, U.S. also has alliance with Korea and Japan, right? It has even permanent bases there. And that never prevented these countries from developing their own advanced armament industry or defense industry. I mean, South Korea already is one of the biggest arms exporters on Earth, including you know giving us F-A-15 fighters. So... The argument that U.S. alliance with the U.S. will automatically mean dependence on the U.S., I'm not sure that's the case with many of our neighbors, or at least in terms of developing a modern forces. We see that in Japan, we see that in Australia, we see that in Korea. So maybe isn't it a bit unfair to just blame the external powers? When I in think fact, perhaps we have to blame our own leadership and our own domestic problems? No, no, no. Uh, what, what they're saying is that we should not depend on external powers for our own defense and the experience of other countries shows us that the level of capability to defend yourself is related to the level of economic development that you are Mm -hmm. able to achieve. Uh, Korea has achieved um, industrial status. So that got that again. But North Korea is a very poor country but with one of the most developed militaries. Uh, It's not just a matter of, of, of military. Uh, mm. Military policy. It's also mm. a matter of the level of development that we have had, mm-hmm. and and so yun nga ang hirap yung uh, asa nalatay ng asa sa United States, but uh, developing our own capability, which includes developing our own industries, developing our own technology, uh, that has to be taken into account. Mm-hmm. And I think government has failed in that regard. Uh, we have not mobilized even our own scientists and our own technologists. Our, or even our own industries towards this effort. Uh, we basically what we do is run to the United States and ask for their second-hand mm-hmm. uh, um, arms and uh, vessels. Um, what do you say about the criticism? Because generally, this is a criticism that a lot of argument against Etka are more circa 1960s and 70s, and that the U.S. we're talking about right now is is a very different America from the 60s and 70s. That America that you know was a superpower, it could just impose its will, I mean, until more recently, right? But many would say that increasingly we're in a bipolar order, that China is already a superpower in its own right, and that China is more of a threat to the Philippines' sovereignty than, let's say, U.S. So what do you say about that? That that the argument of the critics of ETCA is more circa 20th century than 21st century, uh, if you look at the dynamics of the great power competition in this part of the world? I mean, it's it, well. What right. is mm. what is sure is that there is competition between these two mm-hmm. superpowers, and uh, whether you know the United States is still the dominant power, but China is really catching up. Uh, but that means that we have to be more creative in our approach to these uh, to, 
in this bipolar world. You know, siding with the U.S. always, you know, the mutual defense treaty, that was along, that was the, the era of the Cold War. Uh, this, this kind of thinking that we will rely on the United States to defend us, to protect our, our territory, that is circa 1950s, protect us from communism, protect us from China. 1950s by 1960s. So you're saying the other Besides side now also we have is to be more. We, we have to be more sophisticated. We have India now. You have uh, you have Russia. You have China. You have Brazil. Uh, we have ASEAN. Uh, so why now? You know, go back to the to the kind of relationship we had with the United States in the past when they had their military bases here. I think. The, the challenge now is to be more creative and uh, to, to have better engagements, not only with China, but also with other rising uh, uh-huh. industrial powers. Well, speaking of that, I mean... Or even what, mm-hmm. what, what you call the middle, what you call the, the middle, middle, powers. middle powers. Right. I mean, but some would argue that it's not like EDCA is stopping us from developing robust security cooperation with other countries, right? In fact... The uh, the White House visit that President Marcos recently had to the United States, uh, there in the joint statement, even the U.S. admits that it's important for the Philippines to build relationship with Japan, with Australia and other countries. And it's not like the Philippines is not also trying to build better relationship with France, with U.K., with India, South Korea and all of these countries. So is there a mutual exclusivity or isn't it possible for us to have a kind of a Goldilocks level of security cooperation with the U.S.? while simultaneously building robust ties with other middle powers that, that uh, you know, share our dilemmas, that share our aspiration for independent foreign policy? Because that's not very clear to me how mutually exclusive this is. is that, that is, is it like automatically a trap that if we build relations with the U.S., that's going to prevent us from building ties with others? Because empirically speaking, the Philippines is already building uh, more ties with Japan, South Korea, India, and other countries. I mean, India gave us just a Brahmos missile systems. They, they want to give us more weapons systems. The South Koreans are also there. The Japanese have also identified the Philippines as one of their major uh, you know, uh, defense aid uh, beneficiaries in the near future. So I, I'm just not sure how the two are necessarily mutually exclusive. Can they go together? It's not mutually exclusive, but if you look at the newly signed uh, bilateral defense guidelines, uh, there's mention here about modernization, mm-hmm. and the United States will be involved even in the budgeting, in, in the planning and the budgeting of the AFP modernization. It appears we'll, we'll, we'll be having a five-year uh, lock-in with the United States with mm-hmm. respect to, uh, I think, arms procurement. You know, and you know they will really be involved in, in practically the planning, the training. Uh, with that kind of an elephant, you know, <laughs> in the room, uh, will other countries be able to? You mean it, they'll you know, be have any out. substantial or meaningful mm. kinds of uh, security relations? Uh, it appears to me that we have basically put all our eggs in one basket here. Uh, of course, that remains to be seen, but that certainly appears to be the con context of these uh, new guidelines. No? This is not simply about modernizing the mutual defense treaty. It, it's the MDT on steroids. Mm-hmm. And it, it has expanded to include... Uh, the original MDT was focused more on armed attack in the Pacific. But here, simply indicators of an armed attack will already invoke 
uh, allow each party to invoke the MDT. You have activities to include planning, training, budgeting, intel sharing, even uh, cybersecurity, counterinsurgency in the guise of counterterrorism is here. Uh, ano pa bang hindi natin sinama dito? And, you know, if, if this is the kind of uh, relationship that you have with such a superpower and a, a colonial, former colonial master, uh, what kind of relationship can you have with, with the middle powers? Um, so, but then, isn't that a bit contradictory? Okay, isn't it a bit contradictory to say, on one hand, uh, Philippines is not going to get much out of the United States. On the other hand, the U.S. is going to crowd out everyone else because... Can't it be a case whereby, you know, if, if U.S. is really not going to give the best weapons to the Philippines, it should get it somewhere, right? And it's not like Korean or Japanese weapon systems are totally, I mean, they're also NATO grade. I mean, let's not forget, South Korea right now is providing weapon systems to Poland and a number of NATO countries. The Japanese military, uh, Australian military, a lot of European weapon systems are very compatible with the American system. So uh, I, I'm not sure... That's that's the case. I mean, how can you say the U.S. is not going to give the Philippines the best weapons? Richard, and you say it will crowd out everyone else. A, war is a business, Richard. Uh, the American arms suppliers will fight tooth and nail for all these contracts. You know, uh, all the aid that will be giving mm -hmm. to us will be will be getting all these uh, supplies from U.S. contractors, of course. You know. Uh, you can probably have some token purchases from, you know, Korea, probably Israel, but uh, we know from uh, what from what we know mm -hmm. uh, in this business, it's cutthroat competition, and the United States is the biggest arms dealer in the world, and when you have something like this, they will not, you know, they will not put that agreement to waste, and and you can be sure that as always. Our military will be supplied basically by American arms suppliers and dealers, but potentially more advanced I mean, weapon that's, that's systems. Just, that's mm -hmm. just how these things go. But potentially more advanced weapon systems, right? I mean, because we can look at a lot of uh, European countries who have actually quite a diversified source of weapon systems. Some from Europe, some from Korea, some from United States. I think. The right. Philippines had a weird case of having, what, 90% of its weapon systems from U.S. alone. But that was a very underdeveloped, you know, kind of a not very modern weapon systems, right? But as we move towards weapon systems, you're saying that the American contractors are going to eat the whole yeah. market. Is, is that your basically. argument? Now, let's say the ETCA is moving forward. What are the ways to make sure that, uh, that I mean, what are the mitigation mechanisms that you can think about? How to make sure that this ETCA, as it's happening, will, will not create the worst of outcomes. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to say you wish there were no ETCAS, but by all indication, it, this is already happening. In fact, an expanded ETCA is happening. The Armed Forces of the Philippines suggested that ETCA could even be expanded further. New sites could be even given further. Now, with the reality of ETCA already there, what is the best way to make sure that the ETCA doesn't become something too provocative or undermine the Philippine sovereignty? What is the next line of advice you have for the Philippines? In that case, as I said, it's already there, right? Um, now that it's already there in expanded version, what are the uh, mitigating mechanisms you have in mind, right? Just to push the argument further, because if we're just stuck at the either or level, then tapos na, laban, laban, the ETCA is already there, but it's for me, the, the, it's still an, a process in evolution, right? Even if, let's say, lock in for five years, what about the next 10 years, the next 15 years? So now, realistically speaking, with ETCA already there, what are the other what are the mitigating mechanisms 
you have in mind, realistically yeah, speaking? Yeah, the, the EDCA yeah. is basically it's a it's a yeah the EDCA is basically a, a perpetual agreement. No, um, so how to mitigate whatever uh, negative impacts this have? Well, one we will have to abide first of all by the constitutional provisions mm-hmm. on the Philippines. Uh, uh, rejecting the policy of war and that uh, the site should be nuclear free and that uh, we should take the word of the president that there will be no offensive actions coming from these bases and that uh, ensure that these bases will not be used for military intervention by United States like what they did in Mindanao few years back where uh, American military forces were caught engaged in actual combat operations uh, against Filipinos in uh, in Mindanao. Um, so we will have to be more vigilant in ensuring that uh, they, you know, they are really there just uh, to, to to what to to assist supposedly in humanitarian missions, but you know our position is that uh, these EDCA bases are violations of our sovereignty. We do not want foreign troops to be based in our country, uh, and that they should leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else is just you know uh, a compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the, the reality is that the EDCA bases will be built. Uh, ang magagawa lang natin really is, is to be vigilant no? and mm-hmm. to make sure that there will be no abuses, uh, that there will be no social that the social costs will be minimized, also the environmental impact of these bases, uh, and and just hope that uh, the the militarization, the the uh, the arms uh, race. Uh, these sites will not be used for the arms race mm-hmm. and eventual war with uh, China or whoever the U.S. is considering as its enemy. It can be North Korea, it can be, you know, whoever. You talk about vigilance, and uh, speaking of vigilance, I mean, you and your uh, movement is not on, is not the only group against the ETCA. We have uh, people like former President Duterte, whom you uh, quite questioned a while ago in terms of his uh, approach to China, also, the presidential sister who heads the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee has been quite critical of uh, ETCA, or at least how the ETCA has been more and more targeted towards the north, towards Taiwan. Uh, how do you feel about the fact that now you're more or less all in the same camp? Um, strange bedfellows? I mean, what's what's going on there? Well, I'm not so sure uh, if we come from the same place. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think Duterte is doing that because he loves China. Uh, I'm is doing it probably to get more concessions from the United States. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our standpoint is one, one of uh, a nationalist standpoint mm-hmm. uh, and the standpoint that insists that uh, we should assert our sovereignty, uh, stand up for ourselves without having to rely on our former colonial master. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and that is where we are coming from. And, and how do you make sure that um, your positioning and your movement and your energy and your arguments are not weaponized by, let's be honest, pro-Beijing elements in the Philippines? I mean, are um, you concerned about that? You know, that you... our group has been, mm-hmm. has held the most 
our group has, has held the most rallies, rallies protest mm. in front of the Chinese consulate in Makati. Uh, yes, uh, we have been on record as, you know, uh, and we our group was the group that filed the only case in the Supreme Court questioning the joint use of the West Philippine Sea during the time of uh, President the Arroyo. The joint maritime seismic undertaking. Yep, yep. The jo- so, JMSU. Uh, we don't, yes, yes. So we don't think that uh, there will be any confusion mm. on our position against China. But of course, China, as expected, China will, you know, China will use whatever legitimate uh, reasons uh, that that is there against uh, the uh, American presence in the Philippines. That is to be expected. But you know, for us not to do that just because China will. Uh, Will possibly uh, use that for their own purposes. Uh, that that is not a reason not to raise these very valid concerns and issues. Mm-hmm. So, Terika, what is your idea of uh, you know workable yeah, yeah, yeah. model, a, a truly nationalistic patriotic model that is neither too dependent on America nor subservient or you know enabling towards. The other side of the equation. Is there any country that you have you have in mind a workable model that you think can be applicable to the Philippines? Well, offhand, vis a vis how to handle China and the United States, I think Vietnam would be a good um, a good example you know, of how uh, to balance uh, the competing interests of the United States and China. Uh, as far as they are concerned, uh, the kind of, I think they call it hedging that they have been mm-hmm. doing, um, asserting their, very strongly, very strongly asserting their uh, rights and territorial territory in the South China Sea, at the same time engaging in a lot of uh, trade and uh, diplomatic ties with China, mm-hmm. and also relating with the United States, but relating with uh, with some kind of distance. And making sure that uh, they are not seen as um, uh, instruments of either China or the United States. Mm-hmm. I think they have struck uh, some kind of a good balance mm-hmm. there. Uh, probably other ASEAN countries as well. Um, uh, Malaysia, perhaps, mm-hmm. or uh, yeah, um, th- these could be. Th- you know, we could learn some lessons from what they have been doing. Mm-hmm. On a closing question, I mean, this EDCA issue itself, we can debate about this forever. Um, on a closing question, what would you say, I mean, the Filipino people, if you look at the surveys, it's very clear that they want us to team up with Japan, with U.S., with Australia, among others, uh, against China as far as the West Philippines is concerned. Look at the Pulse Asia survey, look at the Social Weather Station surveys. It looks like Support for EDCA is overwhelming. Where do you think that comes from? And, and, and what is your message to the Philippine people? Seem to be, a lot of them seem to be very uh, supportive of this semi-alignment, if not full alignment with the United States in order to keep China out of the Philippine waters. Well, that's true. Uh, you know, um, pro-American sentiment in the Philippines is a given. Uh, sabi nga nila, America is in the heart for many Filipinos. Mm. But uh, we, we are striving really uh, for our people to have a deeper 
know, not not a sentimental uh, attachment to United States, mm-hmm. but look at it from a more objective point of view and to understand the dynamics that is going on uh, in the South China Sea, in the Taiwan Strait, uh, the relationship now between the United States and China, and, and how the Philippines figures in it. And we really have to stand for ourselves you know, and not be too sentimental uh, to to you know get rid of that colonial mentality and that big brother relationship with the United States and see the United States for what it is a global superpower that is desperate to hang on to its power and see China as an emerging threat uh, and and both countries in a sense are also a threat to our sovereignty and we have be, we, we should be prepared to protect our own sovereignty to assert our own kind of development uh, against these two very powerful uh, imperialist countries. Without drawing uh, a moral equivalence, right? Uh, I mean, it's playing, not like U.S. is threatening the Philippines our, in the South China Using Sea. our seats as mm-hmm. their... I mean, but without drawing a moral equivalence, it's not like it's the U.S. who's threatening the Philippines in the West Philippines Sea nowadays, right? It's China. I mean, it's not the U.S. that is threatening war with Taiwan. It's right, right. China, that's, right? That's I mean, true. I'm just saying some facts have to be clear while but, we but, want to have but, an but, independent foreign policy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but we but we should also understand, uh, Richard, that what China is doing in the South China Sea and the seas around Taiwan is also very closely related with its conflict with the United States. I mean... Uh, the Pacific has been the the U.S. lake for uh, a century, and China's rise as not only as an economic power, also as a naval power, is also a, a challenge. Mm-hmm. More than a challenge to the Philippines, it's really a challenge to the United States. The control of those trade routes are are what is at stake for these two countries. And for us to think that China is doing that in the South China Sea just simply because it wants to grab our resources, uh, that, that, that tells only one part of the story. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger part that we should really be conscious of is the dynamic between China and the U.S. And, and the contest is really for control over those trade routes, over those uh, strategic areas. Uh, and, and this is part of their competition. This is part of their conflict. Uh, so let us be more, you know, sophisticated in, in, in uh, uh, looking at that. On that note, thank you very much, Teddy Casino, longtime activist and former legislator, for sharing your views on ETCA and why you believe that ETCA perhaps is not the best thing for the Philippines. Thank you very much again, Teddy. Catch us again next week on One News. You can also check out the long conversation on Spotify, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. I'm Richard Hidarian, and that is The View from Manila. We're One News, all sides, all the time.